We'll hear argument first this morning in case 081322, Astru versus Ratliff. Mr. Yang. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. EJA provides that in an appropriate case, a court shall award to a prevailing party fees and other expenses incurred by that party. Every court of appeals to have addressed the question, including the court below, recognize that the plain meaning of EJA's text directs payment of EJA fees and other expenses to the prevailing party and not her attorney. Moreover, EJA's relationship to the fees approved under Section 406B of the Social Security Act and this Court's decisions in Jeff D. and Benegas in the Section 1988 fee context make clear that Congress designed EJA, like other fee con- uh, shifting context uh, statutes, to work within traditional attorney-client fee relationships under which the attorney looks to the client for payment. Congress has also provided that subject to exceptions not relevant here, all funds payable to the Uni- by the United States to an individual who owes a valid delinquent debt, federal debt, shall be reduced by administrative offset. There is no dispute in this case that the prevailing party in this case, Ms. Kilsry, owed a valid delinquent debt to the United States, received notice of that debt, had the opportunity to repay that debt or enter into a repayment agreement that would have avoided offset, failed to do so. Congress directed in the Debt Collection Improvement Act of 1996 that agencies and the Department of Treasury here shall offset such payments for delinquent debts. Isn't it true that the uh, Commissioner of Social Security in the past paid uh, EJA awards directly to attorneys and that this is still done in cases in which the, the client has assigned the payment to an attorney? Uh, that is true in part. Um, prior to 2005, the Treasury Department did not yet implement, uh, fully implement the Debt Collection Improvement Act with respect to certain payments. Uh, here, these are miscellaneous payments. Treasury undertook the very large undertaking of um, computerizing the system to provide for offsets by tackling things like tax refunds, federal benefits, most contractor payments, large payment systems that, um, uh, that the government deals with on a day-to-day basis, and only in 2005 was able to implement miscellaneous offsets. Since 2005, the government has been offsetting uh, EJA payments. Now, in some circumstances where um, a debt is owed, uh, where an EJA payment is made, um, and a court, for instance, orders the government to pay the attorney, uh, the government's policy is to check whether or not there is a delinquent debt the prevailing party owes. And if not, uh, then the government may accept the assignment or, or comply with the well, — What gives the federal government the right to override state law on that issue? Suppose the situation was that another creditor would have priority over the attorney if the money had been paid directly to the claimant. What gives the government the right, in effect, to override that by paying the money directly to the attorney, unless the government believes that this is payable to the attorney under uh, under EJA? Uh, I don't believe so. There's two circumstances where that we might be talking about. The first circumstance might be where a court has ordered the government to pay uh, the attorney. Uh, that happens in, in a number of cases when the government does not have. Uh, a debt which is receivable from the prevailing party, it complies with the district court's order. It simply does not have a dog in that fight. Um, when we uh, have an assignment that the government recognizes, um, that's true in any kind of context where you might have an assignment. The government recognizes the assignment. If there are third-party creditors who are uh, able to come in, uh, they may come in and contest that. They likely wouldn't have notice of it. But it's no different than any other assignment that the government might accept from a party of, of, of a debt, and that's not an infrequent event. What authority does a court have to direct that the money be paid uh, to the attorney? Well, it certainly doesn't lie in EJA. Uh, courts have uh, recognized that they retain equitable authority uh, to recognize a constructive trust or an equitable lien to enforce an agreement between the attorney and client that the client will pay over to the attorney funds received pursuant to an award such as EJA. And in that context, um, although courts haven't been particularly clear in their reasoning, they have cited to equity, um, the courts have provided that when, 
for instance, uh, an attorney represents a client pro bono or represents um, a, uh, a prisoner pro bono, that the court will see to it that the payment actually received doesn't ultimately land in the hands of the client and enforces the understanding, either express or implicit, between the attorney and client that the funds that the client receives will go to. What would happen in the case, in case it is a, a prisoner um, who is this prevailing party? Would the would the attorney fee be paid to the prisoner, and if not? To whom would it be paid? The attorney fee under EJA is payable to the prevailing party, which would be the prisoner. Now, attorneys would likely come in, the attorneys for the prisoner, and ask the court to exercise its equitable authority to recognize a constructive trust over the fees that are actually paid to the, to the party and prevent the party from keeping that money. Um, but a, a prisoner is ultimately no different than any other prevailing party under EJA. It is the prevailing party to whom Congress has directed that courts shall award fees and other expenses. So how can the court's broad equitable authority trump what you say is what the statute says? Well, they're not trumping it, Your Honor. Um, the, there's two things going on when a court recognizes uh, an equitable trust. First, it has to necessarily recognize the right uh, of the prevailing party to the payment. The, the, the prevailing party obtains the payment, and only once the prevailing party actually has title to the thing does equitable trust or a constructive trust um, uh, attach. So it's recognizing in the EJA context that the prevailing party is the one who is entitled to the fee. But then so you actually have to transfer it or? Uh, well. I mean, the statute says pay the prevailing party. Correct. And you're saying the court can say no, pay the lawyer. Correct. In certain, you know. In, in order to recognize the agreement between the party and the attorney. Where um, is the agreement between the party and the attorney? In the Equal Access to Justice Act provides that fees will be paid to the prevailing party. Where does the prevailing party have a contract with the attorney to turn the fees over? I'm sorry, I didn't. But you, you said that pursuant, it's, maybe I misunderstood you, but I thought you said that there is a contract between the prevailing party and the attorney. And where is, how does that contract come about? If it's simply a case that the lawyer is representing a pro bono, a, a plaintiff. Where well, is as this court recognized in, in Venegas in the, in the Section 1988 context, um, it's commonplace either for there to be an express or an implied agreement to pay over uh, any statutory award that the prevailing party may receive to the to the attorney. And I think in the absence of any indication. Otherwise, courts are, are well positioned to simply say, you know, if, if they haven't agreed otherwise, the normal practice um, would be for a prevailing party, if they were to receive something uh, for under a statutory fee-shifting provision like Section 1980 or like EJA, uh, to agree to have paid it to the attorney. Doesn't, doesn't the government set off depend upon who owns the money under state law? I mean, it, it's, it's commonplace for, for the, the federal law to look to state law on, on issues of ownership. Uh, and, in fact, if there is this doctrine of equitable ownership uh, on the part of the attorney, uh, what right does the government have to do the settle? Well, that might be true if we were relying on a common law offset. But in this context, Congress has directed that all federal payments, unless there's an exception, and there is no exception in this case, are to be offset before payment, any payment, to, to the debtor. Um, so in this case, Congress has effectively established a priority scheme whereby when a debtor owes a delinquent valid debt to the United States and the United States owes a, an offsetting obligation to that individual, uh, Congress has provided that no federal funds shall be paid to the individual and instead that the Debt, the government's debt shall be offset against the debt that the, the what, if, what if the client is bankrupt? What happens then? 
Uh, the same rule would, would apply. No federal payment uh, would, would — well, I believe that the, the same rule would apply. I have not carefully studied the bankruptcy provisions, and I hate to venture into a very complicated area uh, to give you something definitive, but my belief is that based on the very clear text of Section 3716 of Title 31, which was amended by the Debt Collection Improvement Act, that no payment shall be, you know, even bankruptcy, the payment goes to the, has to go to the debtor first and it goes to the estate, um, that no payment shall be made from the Treasury. Instead, administrative offset shall be undertaken to collect the government's debt. Is there, is there a way for the lawyer, a lawyer sees that his client has a good case against the government and thinks he can get an EAGA fee. So he says to the client, I'd like to represent you and I can get paid for this. But the client says there are a lot of debts I owe the government. Now, is there any way they can work it out so he can get the representation? Well, sure. There's, uh, as we indicated in our brief, there's several things that can be done. First, the attorney can determine whether there is, in fact, a, a debt which is eligible for offset, and that can be done by asking the Treasury with a valid Privacy Act waiver from the client. If that is the case, the client retains the right, which Congress uh, expressly codified in Section 3716, the right to enter into a repayment agreement. If that is done, um, there will be no offset. And the repayment agreement is largely governed by the federal debt. Uh, federal claims collection standards, which are codified in 31 CFR 900 to 904, and those pro- uh, payment uh, those provisions provide in section uh, 901.8, for instance, that installments shall uh, should bear a reasonable relation to the size of the debt and the debtor's ability to pay, and in some instances, the government agency is able to compromise that debt. Uh, if the debtor is unable to repay within a reasonable amount of time, the agency should consider the age, health, present potential income, as well as assets of the debtor, uh, in order to determine. In other words, the, the lawyer and the agency and the client sit down, and the lawyer says, here, I can get some money for this client, and that will help everybody, but I want to be paid. And so I want you, agency, to agree that on the repayment schedule, if I get an EAGA fee, uh, then I get to keep it, and I don't have to give it to he- my client, who will have to give it to the government. And then they can sign a piece of paper, and then that's done, and the lawyer gets to keep the money. That, that's correct. And has and that ever happened? I don't know that that's happened in this office. It could context. now. Now people would know it, about it. it, it they it could, could do could it. It could well happen. Well, what's, and, and the, what's, the, what's the authority for the government to enter into that agreement? The authority I mean, If is, the statute says there has to be an offset, that's it. Well, the statute also provides under Section 3711 for the Department of Justice and the Department of Treasury to establish guidelines for agencies. They've done so in, in parts 901 to, or 900 to 904 of Title 31 of the Code of Federal and, Regulations. Uh, do the, but do the guidelines reflect Justice Breyer's hypothetical? Uh, well, the statute actually reflects the uh, Justice Breyer's hypothetical because in Section 3716, uh, this is at page uh, 9A of the a government's briefs appendix, um, the head of the agency prior to implementing an administrative offset must advise, and this is on A4, uh, the uh, debtor of the opportunity to make a written agreement with the head of the agency to repay the amount of the claim. That reflects the practice in the um, federal claims collection standards of agreeing to repayment of such claims. Could you tell me on what would motivate the government to agree to give to a lawyer a piece of a recovery that it, the government thinks it's entitled to? I mean, it's one thing to work a repayment plan. That starts on the proposition that the individual can only each week or month or whatever give a certain amount of money over. Well, I think what the hypothetical was premised at the beginning of the lawsuit rather than the end. If, if the case were at the end, and the government were ordered to pay an EJF fee, the offset would be automatic. We would not agree at that point to split the, the uh, offset with, with the attorney. But in the beginning of the lawsuit, when the attorney is undertaking representation of the client, the attorney is able to do precisely what Congress intended, which was to have debtors come to the United States and take, avail themselves of the opportunity to repay their debts to avoid an offset. Well, but, that, but that's a f- fanciful answer because EJIT requires that the government's position, you get fees, is substantially unjustified. 
And so the government lawyer is going to sit down and say, well, you know, if I take a position that is substantially unjustified, I will at that point pay the fees to you, not to the, the client. Well, not at all. The government's interest in an uh, installment plan is not motivated by Egypt. The government's yeah, but interest the attorney's is interest, I thought in the hypothetical we were talking about, the attorney's interest is he thinks the government is going to take a substantially unjustified position, and he wants to make sure in that case that he gets paid. Uh, th- this is a separate question, which is whether there's really any deterrent or, or how large the deterrent effect would be uh, having the specter of a fee offset. Um, and as we explained uh, in our brief, this Court in Underwood explained that because EJA awards are not given to every prevailing party and are only given to parties where the government's position is not substantially justified, it is uh, one cannot reliably determine in advance whether the government's position is going to be so unreasonable that you're going to get an, an award of fees. And that, that suggests that any deterrent effect of having the possibility of an offsetting, an offset for the client's debt is small. And that well, that's going to look awful bad to a court that comes in and, and, he's, and the court is asked to award EJA fees. And there's an agreement already in effect. The government says, well, if we're, you know, if we're liable for EJA fees, this is how we're going to handle it. I, I, I may that would have be spoken. The first piece of, that would be the first piece of evidence that I would want to put in saying I should get EJA fees. The government thought they might even take a position that qualified. Let me, let me back up. I may have misspoken. What I intended to convey is that at the beginning of a case, when an attorney is deciding whether to represent a client, the case has not been litigated. We don't know whether the government's position is going to be found to be substantially unjustified or not. The attorney, if the attorney checks and wants to determine whether the client has a, a debt owed to the government that would be subject to offset, the attorney can go to the government and say, Let's enter into a repayment plan so that my debtor gets on the government's good graces and no longer is subject to have a tax tax return, for instance, offset or any other payment that the government may owe to that debtor in the future, including EJA. But it's not because of the EJA payment that you would enter into the agreement. No, but he goes into the government and says, look, I'm about to sue you, and I'd like to sit down and negotiate a nice agreement about the repayment. Well, I guess the attorney may say I'm about to sue you, but the government certainly is not motivated because of the lawsuit. The government, it, whether an attorney is going to sue the government or not, the question is. Government lawyers are always sympathetic to people who come in and say I'm going to sue you. <laughs> well, I guess that certainly gets our attention. Um, but the reason that the government would enter into a repayment agreement is because that is an opportunity for the government to collect a debt that is delinquent, valid, and outstanding. And what Congress intended to do in the Debt Collection Improvement Act was not to have additional federal funds be paid to debtors who have been given multiple warnings of the debt and are essentially, you know. The problem with your argument is that this pot of money is actually not going to — it's going to the debtor, according to your argument, because in theory the debtor is the prevailing party and is entitled to get the award. But the money is not being paid to the debtor. It's for the benefit of the lawyer who's done the work that Congress wanted done. Well, actually, I don't know what the I, I don't know what the motivation would be for a lawyer to undertake to represent a meritorious claim when they have to not only do the work in the case, but now have to do the work for the government in getting their client to negotiate an agreement with the government on something that's completely unrelated to the claim. I guess there's, it, it's there's a few illogical. Answers. There's a few answers to that. EJA applies not only in the Social Security context. It applies in all civil actions in which, uh, not sounding in tort, in which there's not a, another specific fee provision um, brought by or against the United States. Congress intended, and this is in the statutory findings which precede EJA in Section, uh, I believe it's 202 of the Act, um, it is, to diminish the financial deterrent on individuals, businesses, and organizations caused by the expense of providing, uh, of, of litigating a case. Uh, this that, is that sounds like you're, you're, you have, the client has an agreement to pay the lawyer, or the client has paid the lawyer. It would make sense if the client has paid the lawyer and then there is reimbursement under EAJA, that what, what you're describing would make sense in that situation. But in most of these situations, 
the client doesn't have the wherewithal to pay the attorney up front. That may be true in the Social Security context, uh, but there are many instances in which this is the, this is the normal way that, you know, clients and, and, and their, cli- uh, their attorneys work out fee arrangements. Sometimes clients will pay their attorney in advance. Um, sometimes we'll pay as the litigation goes forward. And by the time you hit an EJA award, the client will have paid all or part, sometimes none, but all or part of, of a fee award. And the Congress directed the, the language is very clear. Courts shall award to the prevailing party fees. And does that mean the, party. The, the award goes to the prevailing party? So, therefore, the attorney's fee is income to the client? Uh, is taxable income to the client? This is — the answer to that is complicated, and generally, yes. Um, the IRS is of the view that attorney fee awards to prevailing parties, whether it's EJO or otherwise, are deemed to be taxable income to the client. Now, the clients, of course, will have a, an offsetting deduction for expenses incurred by, uh, in, the, in the course of producing or collecting income, and that was recognized by this Court's opinion in banks. Um, that deduction is, of course, subject to certain limits. It has to be in excess of 2 percent of the adjusted gross income and subject to the alternative minimum tax, which wouldn't apply to Social Security climate. But the general answer is yes, it is income. When the, the prevailing party receives a fee, there is an offsetting deduction. However, uh, there is a uh, — some uncertainty with whether some fee awards, when the underlying benefit obtained is not taxable, um, whether that IRS, the IRS will treat such payments to the, the fee awards. As like different. pain and suffering, but that's not. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, but also certain federal benefits, including Social Security um, benefits, have a very complicated tax relationship. Uh, Social Security benefits are taxable in part. It depends on the size and the amount of other income. So the answer is actually quite complicated whether fees are taxable under EJA in the Social Security context. But the general rule is, yes, fee awards to a prevailing party are income, of course, subject to it. And then in turn, income to the attorney when the, if the client Correct. Just as, you know, when I'm, you know, I am I, paid my salary and taxed on it, and then when I pay for services, the person to whom I pay also has income and they are taxed as well. This is not an unusual uh, situation. It seems to me the underlying assumption of some of the questions that have been put to you by the court is that the government has somehow benefited uh, because some money is created to offset the debt. It really isn't. It's this, it would, this, this would be true. If the attorney were suing a third party and creating a fund, the government said, ah, there's some money. We in, in this case, it's just being paid from one account to the other. The government would be better off if there were no suit at all. That's correct. If the government never had an EJA award, it at least would be uh, left it's just, with the it's debt. It's paying itself from one account to the other. That's correct. The government is, is ultimately zeroes out here. The person that gets the benefit is the prevailing party, because the prevailing party has uh, eliminated a debt to the United States by having that offset by the EJO award. So the prevailing party obtains the benefit, which is precisely what Congress intended here. The government zeroes out, but but in the course of it, it has taken a legal position in court against a small business that was substantially unjustified. And it has paid its EJA award by offsetting that award against the debt that the business owed to the United States. The government is, at the end of the day, the balance sheets of the government have not changed. The, and with, but I think the idea, of, well. From the perspective of the prevailing party as well, the prevailing party has an obligation to the attorney. Those are the attorney's fees incurred which have not yet been paid. The prevailing party also has an obligation to the government in the, in the amount of a debt. It has income that comes in through the, uh, through the fee award. And whether that goes to offset the debt to the government or offset the, uh, for use for, to pay the attorney, the prevailing party ultimately gets the benefit of that fee award, and the government has paid the EJA award as required by statute. Do you happen to know how much the, the Treasury typically collects in a year under these uh, EJA offsets? Does put a dent in the federal We deficit? don't, and, and the reason we don't is because each agency that, uh, which, which is the subject of, uh, of an EJA order, submits to Treasury a payment request based on that order, and they check miscellaneous payment. That agency doesn't know whether that payment is offset. Treasury receives that 
that request of payment and sees that it's a miscellaneous payment, checks it against a debt, and may offset. But Treasury doesn't know that the miscellaneous payment was an EJA award. So we don't have any statistics that we can point to to say how often this, this occurs. Um, I can say that the Financial Management Service executes one, over one billion payments per year and that offsets uh, of those payments account for $4.8 billion, so about two-tenths of one percent of payments from the Federal Government uh, result in offsets. I'd like to uh, reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Leach. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. I'd like to discuss with you this morning four reasons why Catherine Ratliff, and not the government, is entitled to receive the fee for the legal services she performed that Congress invited her to perform to show that the government's position was legally erroneous and was not even substantially justified. And my first point rises from your question, Justice Scalia. You asked whether uh, state law determines uh, who has the priorities here in terms of offset, if I understood. And the answer is that actually federal law determines that, specifically the Debt Collection Improvement Act and regulations. The Act requires mutuality of uh, debt between the uh, debtor and the government before the government can offset. And the regulations, which I'll quote in just an instant, require that before offset can occur, the government must look to who has the beneficial interest in the payment. In other words, who is entitled to benefit from it. Specifically, 31 CFR 25.5B, which is quoted at page 45 of the red brief, defines, quote, offset, close quote, as withholding funds to satisfy a debt owed by a payee. And payee, and this is critical, is defined at the same, uh, in the same regulation, also quoted at page 45 of our reply brief, as the person entitled, uh, as, as the person entitled to the benefit of all a part of a payment. In other words, not the legal title holder if there's a difference, but the person with beneficial interest. The prevailing party gets the benefit in the sense that uh, she's relieved of the uh, debt she owed to the government. That's a real benefit. Well, Your Honor, I think uh, that's a benefit. True, that's a benefit. I agree. But that's not a, a benefit, I don't think, in the sense of who has, because the question is who has the beneficial interest in the fee payment. When we look to that question, because that's, that's what issue here is the fee payment. Isn't when this argument circular? The, the, the issue is who is, to whom is this payment to be made? And if it's to be made to the, 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 um, the claimant, then it's not for the beneficial interest of the, of the attorney. Two responses, if I could, Justice Alito. First, the word payment gets thrown around a lot in the briefs. It can mean two separate things. It can mean who receives the payment first. In other words, who's the check mailed to? Or it can mean who the check is ultimately entitled to, who's entitled to benefit from it. And the government's, my second point, is the government's reply brief at page 10 to 12 concedes that but for the government's alleged right to offset, the attorney does indeed have the beneficial interest in the attorney's fee. And the government gives three reasons, and only three reasons, why its alleged right to offset trumps the attorney's beneficial interest. The first reason the government gives is the government says that the, uh, the, the constructive trust, which the government acknowledges exists in, the, uh, in, in, in favor of the attorney with respect to the fee payment, does not arise until the instant the fee reaches the client. And that's true, but that's not the point. The point is the attorney had the beneficial interest in the fee, which had to proceed the moment the fee reached the client, if it's payable to the client in the sense of sent to. The beneficial interest had to precede that in order for constructive trust to arise. The government's second argument that it... Well, on the first one, imagine that the... 
uh, a trust owes some money to the government. And now suppose a lawyer representing the trust recovers. Now they recover on a separate debt. Okay? Separate debt. One, that money goes to the trust. Right? If the I'm not trust first owes a, uh, the, if the trust owes a thousand dollars to the government, the trust then independently recovers five hundred dollars from the government on a different matter. Yes, government couldn't offset that. Of course it could. Yeah, of course it could. Yes. but the trust is not a person entitled to the benefit of the payment. Well, the beneficiaries of the trust are entitled to the benefit of the payment. If I understood your hypothetical, if the trust is entitled to $500, yes. then the trust, I think, would be entitled to the benefit of the payment. It's not entitled to the benefit of the $500. The trust holds money for the benefit of the beneficiaries of the trust. I so uh, it can't that, but you agree that that couldn't be. Well, uh, yeah, and once you agree that that couldn't be, I think you're in trouble on your first argument. I'm not sure. Okay, I don't think so, because if we're talking about payments to persons, you know, if a person, if a person owes a debt of $10,000, receives $500 on the debt, the person receives the benefit of that $500. And similarly, the, the guy, the, 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 the client here receives the benefit of the money that he's just gotten from the government, including the attorney's fees. It happens that he can't keep those attorney's fees, just as the trust can't keep the $500. He has to give the attorney's fees to the lawyer, just as the trust eventually has to give the $500 to the beneficiary. So I'm, I'm simply saying, drawing a parallel, which go on to the next issue. All right, Your Honor. Um, well, let me do, uh, can trusts, can trusts recover EJA fees? I don't know, Your Honor. Yeah, I don't either. I'm looking at the definition. It doesn't say trust. It says a lot of other things like corporation, association, unit of government. I just don't. I don't know I'm having trouble government. with this aspect, and it may, may be that it varies from state to state. But as a general matter, under state law, let's say that the employee makes a contingency fee arrangement with the lawyer to sue the employer and wins $50,000. Uh, it's a one-third uh, contingency. Uh, the, the employee already owes the employer $40,000. It would seem to me under the general principle of offset uh, that the employer has to only pay $10,000 and the attorney's not going to get his full fee. Um, and that's just, a, that, that's that's just the law of offsets because, again, it's the same party. If they created money by pursuing some third person, then, then, then that's different. I think and, and so I, I, it seems to me that uh, what, what, you're, what you're asking for is just contrary to the standard law of offsets. Well, Your Honor, what and, I'm and, it, and it's even worse because the federal statute says that there shall be this offset first as a matter of priority. Actually, Your Honor, the federal statute uh, provides for offset in accordance with regulations to be issued by the Treasury Department. And those Treasury Department regulations, what I quoted right at the beginning of my argument, we have to look at who is entitled to the benefit mm -hmm. of the payment, not the benefit in a generalized sense of the lawsuit. Well, in the generalized sense of, of, of common law of offsets, as I've described to it, uh, sure, the attorney has a beneficial interest, but he's not going to be able to collect it vis-a-vis -vis the employer who's entitled to an offset. Yes, and the difference, Your Honor, is that in your hypothetical, we're talking about one uh, sum of money that's recovered in the name of the claimant. In this situation, we're talking about a statutory fee award, which is created only based on the work of the attorney and which is labeled an attorney's fee, and it's separate from the benefits of How is it different? Look, this is what I was talking about has nothing to do with Egypt. Yes. It has to do with when the government's allowed to offset some money. Yes. And it's allowed to offset some money when the money is money that it would otherwise give to a payee. All right, and then you've defined yes. payee as a person who has some beneficial interest in that yes. money. Yes. And I think that the client here has no more and no less beneficial interest, whether he's a person or whether he's a trust. That was my point. I understand, Your Honor. Okay. Um, and my, my point about the statute uh, is, is simply um, 
that the statute is subject to the regulation, which looks to who's entitled to benefit. Okay, let, let's take the regulation of uh, a person who is entitled to the benefit of all or part of the payment. Ultimately, isn't it the uh, uh, the plaintiff who's recovered that is entitled to the benefit because this money is given to him in order that he can meet a financial obligation that he owes to the lawyer. I mean, if this didn't exist, he'd, he'd owe the lawyer and have to pony it up out of his own pocket, no? Not so, Your Honor, in Social Security cases, which this is, and in veterans cases, which together account for more than 90 percent of all EJA awards. In Social Security cases, 42 U.S.C. 406b2, set out in our, in our appendix, makes it a federal crime for any lawyer to charge, receive, demand, or collect a fee payment directly from a client, other than under past the 46 U.S.C. 406, past due benefits 25 percent, or EJA. And this is a critical difference. In, in the non-EJA, in the non-Social Security, non-veterans context, you know, about 10 percent of cases, you've got, conceivably, you've got often clients paying lawyers on a traditional pay-as-you-go basis. But in a Social Security case or a veteran and, and, and in those cases, you agree the offset can be made? Absolutely. Huh? Absolutely. The difference here in all these Social Security and veterans cases is that the attorney is barred by law from receiving money on a pay-as-you-go basis. So the attorney has never been paid. In exchange for getting 25 percent of the recovery? No. Actually, Your Honor, in exchange for uh, showing in in federal court, if I understand your question. And my understanding is that the ordinary payment to the lawyer for Social Security benefits gained for the client is 25 percent of the recovery to the client paid directly to the lawyer. That's true. So that just as a a background in this case, uh, did Ms. Radcliffe get that 25 percent? No, Your Honor. There Uh, was no 25 percent fee here. And that was because it was too small to be bothered with? What what was the reason? Uh, She did not apply for a 25 percent fee. It would have been quite small had she received it. It would have been much smaller than the EJA fee. And she could keep only one of the — she could keep only the the larger of the two. Had she received the EJA fee, she could have kept it. Well, one of the difficulties with your position is that Congress did exempt a number of federal payments from the offset, but it didn't exempt um, equal access to justice fees. Yes, and uh, there are two points there, Your Honor. I mean, EJA fees, I'm not claiming all EJA fees are exempt, as I just said with you, spoke with you, Justice Scalia. If the in a non-Social Security, non-veterans case where the client has paid the attorney and then an EGF fee comes down, that's clearly subject to offset. You have to look to that regulation and who is entitled to the benefit of the fee payment. And the reason that the Debt Collection Improvement Act doesn't address this in 1996 is that in 1996 the government had never taken the position that uh, attorney fees were subject to offset in Social Security or veterans cases. And in fact, in 1996, there were three Court of Appeals decisions on the question of whether creditor could offset a statutory fee award, plant, these are all in our briefs, plant, Fourth Circuit 1979, uh, uh, Duncan, I'm sorry, plant is Fifth Circuit 1979, Duncan, Fourth Circuit 1989, Curtis, Eighth Circuit 1993, all those cases said that the uh, creditor may not offset a statutory fee award against the creditor's debt because the fee is for the attorney. That's why Congress couldn't have conceivably thought to address it in 1996. And some of the questions take me toward the point that you asked about before, Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts. And you, uh, you, you, you suggested or you, you said that um, EJA says uh, 
pay to the prevailing party, if I heard you correctly. In fact, Your Honor, the language of the statute is, quote, award to the prevailing party, dot, 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 fees and other expenses, dot, 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 incurred by that party. And the, the two parts that we haven't really addressed yet are that what is awarded is attorney's fees and this incurred by language. With respect to that attorney's fee language, attorney's fees has a traditional meaning. It's a meaning this Court has recognized in all those cases bullet pointed at page 19 to 21 of our briefs. It's a fee earned by and paid to an attorney. And in Gisbrecht versus Barnhart in 2002, this Court specifically described the real parties in interest in attorney's fees litigation as the attorneys, recognizing the reality that attorney fees go to attorneys. In addition, the, uh, the language incurred by that party, what does it mean here? Well, outside of EJ, it could mean, it, it does mean, I think, money ta- the client takes out, pays the attorney. We know in Social Security cases and veterans cases, it can't mean that because that's illegal. That's a federal crime if the attorney does it. So what does it mean? Well, the government concedes at page 8 of its reply brief that that language incurred by a prevailing party is supported by the client's implied or expressed obligation to pay the attorney the fee received. So this is where the government's argument is circular, I think, uh, Justice Alito, in the sense that um, that incurred by language only is satisfied and an EJA award only may be made where the client has the express or implied obligation to pay the attorney. Well, you, you, you say that in Social Security the attorney is forbidden to accept pay as you go? Is, is, is it? Yes, Your Honor. But that doesn't mean that, that, that there is not either an express or an implied contract between the attorney and, and the Social Security recipient. I, I agree. That's what I was trying to say. Well, but if there is that implied contract, then it is an obligation of the recipient. Yes, that's what I was trying to say, Your Honor. Well, I don't see how that leads you where you want to go. Then then the payment given to the recipient does indeed benefit the recipient by, by uh, paying off an obligation that the Social Security recipient has. Yes, but that obligation exists only to the extent of the Egypt fee. It's not a separate obligation. The attorney can't turn around and go against the client. I mean, 406B2 prohibits the attorney going against the client for any fee other than the 406B fee, which is separate, if there is a 406B fee, or the EJA fee. Is and it, and I, when, I, when we've been talking, I'm sorry. You're, you're, Just so I'm clarifying, is it your position, and this is something I want to ask the government as well, that once the EJA fee is awarded, the attorney couldn't sue the client later, even in an offset situation, for repayments, because by statute you view them as blocked from from seeking anything other than the EJA fee or the 406 fee? Yes, that's what 406b2 says, Your Honor. So that once the offset happens, the attorney under, even if the, uh, the client had other money, the attorney would be blocked from going after it. Yes, Your Honor. Because and by the terms of the statute, they can only seek the EJA fee. They can only seek what? The, either the EJA fee or the 406 fee. Yes. And we've been talking as if EJA fees and 406Bs, fee, 406B fees are sort of contemporaneous in every case. In fact, uh, the data cited at page 14 of the red brief is that um, 46 percent of federal court social security cases result in a remand. Only 5 percent result in an award of benefits. So there can be far more EJA fees in federal court than there ever are 406B fees. Could I just you calculate the fee under either the Social Security Act or EJA, depending on the case? Do you ever calculate it under both so that you get some under each? Yes, Your Honor. And that's the, 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 you calculate it under both, so you get some under each. No, Section Three says how this works of the of EJ 1985. It says if there are two fees, the attorney keeps uh, the larger fee, right. sends it smaller to the client, and vice versa. 
And that's the situation, for example, where you could have an offset of an EJA fee in a Social Security case. Let's say there's a 406B fee that's $6,000. Let's say there's an EJA fee that's $4,000. Under Section 3, that, the attorney doesn't keep that $4,000. That 4000 winds up in the client's pocket. Government can offset that. That's, that's what integrates all this discussion we've been having about EJA fees not being exempt. We have to look at the beneficial interest. In what percent of the, the Social Security cases of where the, the claimant prevails, is there an EJA fee? Forty-six percent. No, that's not right. It's about 42 percent. And I get that from combining two numbers. There are 5,481 EJA awards per year. That's red brief page four. And there are about 13,000 Social Security civil cases per year. That's green brief page 22. uh, 13,000 divided by 5,481 is 42 percent. And this brings me to the point the government was making in suggesting that an attorney at the beginning of a case could never know whether or not there, there is going to be an EJA fee, because, uh, you know, you can't know at the beginning, they argue, what position the government will take, whether or not the government's position is substantially justified or not. Well, and, and the government cites um, uh, Pierce uh, Underwood from 1988 from this court, in which this court said exactly that, Pierce versus Underwood. Pierce versus Underwood is outside the Social Security context, outside the veterans context. So Pierce versus Underwood is in this less than 10 percent category of cases under EJA, which are not Social Security or veterans. In a Social Security case or a veterans case, the attorney has the record before proceeding into court, before deciding whether to proceed into court. And the attorney can look at that record, read it, and have a pretty good idea whether or not the government position might be substantially justified or not. I don't ask you to take my word for any of this. Let me tell you what the data shows. The data, Justice Ginsburg, this is where the 42 percent of federal Social Security cases result in an EJA award. If it's 42 percent, that's quite a high number of cases in which the government's position is found not substantially justified as well as legally erroneous. In veterans' cases, it's even worse. The Court of Veterans' Appeal website lists the number of cases altogether, number of dispositions per year, and the number of each awards. And for 2008 and 2009, if you add up the numbers, out of all the veterans' disability cases filed, 70 percent, 7-0, result in an EJA award. So there's quite a large number of, of cases in which, the, in, in, in a veterans' context or social security context, where the government's position is found not to be. I don't understand your the earlier point. I'm sorry. Uh, imagine that a, Joe Smith's in a lot of financial trouble. Yes. His house is being uh, foreclosed on. Yes. All his bank accounts are attached. Then he gets some money from the government, and including an EJA fee. Yes. That's five thousand dollars for the money and. A thousand for the fee. They put it in his bank account. It was attached. Goodbye. Nobody sees the money because whoever attached it got the money. Is that possible? Are you talking about the government? I'm making this up. I'm not talking about no. the government. I'm saying the government paid him five thousand plus a thousand in an Egypt fee, and the bank got all the money because it had attached his bank account. Is that possible? Is this in a social scheme? I'm making it up. No, it has nothing to do with I'm just making yes. up a hypothetical. Yes, it is. All right? Yes. You follow that. Those are the I facts. Think so. Okay. So a year later, Joe Smith is doing much better. Couldn't the attorney now sue him for the $1,000? Say, I'd like it. It went to the bank because they'd attached the bank account. Outside the Social Security context, yes. I All right. Now, I suppose it happened to be that that 6000 five for the one, one for the other, came from Social Security. Then how does that make a difference? The bank could not take it because of the anti-assignment provision. For it couldn't take the 1000 
Couldn't take any of it. Under couldn't take any of it. Because of? 407. Is that in here? Yeah, 42 U.S.C. 407. Uh, it's, it's cited, even it's not quoted. Uh, prohibits assignment of Social Security benefits. But just, just and, prior, if I and, and the EJA fee counts as a Social Security benefit. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I thought we were outside the Social Security. Well, yeah. Security context. I changed it and said, now, how does it matter if it's Social Security? Uh, if it's an EJA fee in a Social Security context, the bank cannot take that because of the federal — well, because the, the attorney, the cons- government admits that constructive trust exists in favor of the attorney with respect to those funds. If you win this case. No, the government says, has said that in its — In other words, in other words, no one can attach. No one can — no one can get the EJA fee by attaching the bank account of the client. Yes. Okay. And I wanted to get back to the point you asked Justice Breyer. Well, skip my points. They're too complicated. Well, <laughs> but during just — during Mr. Yang's argument, you asked about this — this uh, repayment agreement. The concept of a repayment agreement being any use to a lawyer who's thinking about taking one of these cases is fanciful for two reasons. Number one, SSI benefits by statute are limited to, quote, aged, blind, and disabled people who have little or no money. So I don't know where the the disabled or blind or aged person is going to get the money to enter into any repayment agreement. But the second reason it's fanciful is that the attorney only has 60 days from final agency action to file the case in federal court. And so there's 60 days to, you know, meet with the client and then try to get an answer out of the government. I've never tried to do this. I don't know anyone who has, but I don't think you're going to get much of an answer in 60 days asking the government uh, to do this so the attorney can then recover a fee. Finally, there's a, there's a critical point here that I need to get to, which is that I think Congress has told us exactly what this language means. Here's why. In 1985, Congress enacts EJF and uses this Section 3 language, which talks about you know, who gets the fee, larger, smaller fee. Okay? In 1992, Congress extends EJA to veterans' claims. And when it does that, in 38 U.S.C. 5904, Congress uses the same language down to the exact commas in the same place that it has done in 1985. During this entire period, and here's why that's important, during that entire period from 1985 to 1992, and indeed continuing many years after that, but for purposes here, 1992, the administration is every time paying the attorney's fee to the attorney under EJA. And so when Congress in 1992 uses the same language for veterans' EJA claims that it used for Social Security EJA claims, seven years earlier, Congress, by, as a matter of law, is incorporating the settled administrative I, I thought the, I thought the government said they only did that when, when the court directed uh, that it be paid to the attorney. Mr. Yang was talking about from 2006 on. From, 1990, from 1985 to 2006, every EJA fee went to the attorney. Because there was no offset in the picture, because the government wasn't off- offsetting. Two responses, Your Honor. The offset came into the picture in 1996, but the government says it wasn't practical to 2005, even if you grant them that point. The agency had to make, totally apart from offset, the agency had to decide who these fees should be paid to under Section 3, I mean, under EJA. The government had to say, who does this statute say fees should be paid to? Now, had the government said, well, fees go to the client, says, you know, award to the prevailing party, fees and other expenses. We're going to pay attorney's fees to clients, which had never happened. But had the government uh, said that, that, that's not what they said. They look at the statute. They look at the fact that the attorney earned the fees, and they say, we're going to pay these fees to the attorney. So that's what's going on at the time Congress in 1992 copies. It's 1985. But Congress has provided in some statutes 
the Social Security Act itself, 406 that you quoted, for the fee direct to be paid directly to the attorney. Here it used different language. It said pay the prevailing party. That's two. Two points, um, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, number one, we get back to this question about does payment mean who receives the check and who's entitled to benefit from it? Number two, EJA doesn't say pay to the party. EJA doesn't use the phrase payment. 406 says pay, payment to the attorney. EJA doesn't say that, payment at all. The only place you find pay in EJA is where it says uh, the government cannot be required to pay a filing fee. There's this shell award to a prevailing party, fees and other expenses, and D2A defines fees to include, quote, attorney fees, close quote. I'm finishing my sentence, Your Honor. Go ahead. Thank you. And, uh, and, and so payment isn't even in Egypt. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Mr. Yang, you have four minutes remaining. I believe I heard uh, Counsel concede that Egypt fees outside of the Social Security context are payable to the prevailing party and therefore subject to offset. That's true. EJA does not draw a distinction between Social Security fees and uh, other types of fees. Section 2412 uses the same language. Court shall award to the prevailing party fees and other expenses. I believe that disposes of this case. Second, Council relies on a definition of representative payee in the offset regulations. That's addressed at reply, our reply, page 2, footnote 1. A representative payee, as the Federal Register provisions that relate to this make clear, it refers to things like attorneys. It refers to things like parents, where the beneficial interest is not that of the attorney or the parent, but the client and the child. It would be entirely unworkable if any time that a payee owes some debt that a third party might claim an interest to, that the government would have to find out the payee's finances and obligations in order to execute an offset. Simply not the way the offset program was designed, and it's not reflected in the regulations. Counsel, um, is your adversary correct that under 406 um, B2, B that if these attorneys, if any attorney attempts to uh, collect from a Social Security or veterans uh, client any fees outside of those granted? No. Section 206B of the EJA, which is reproduced on 4A of our appendix, states that Section 206B2, provision you were talking about, shall not apply with respect to any such award, meaning any award under EJA, so long as where the attorney receives fees, the smaller fee is returned. Counsel, so, do, you, do you dispute your friend's statement that 42 percent of the time in Social Security cases the government's position is unjustified and 70 percent of the time in veterans' cases? Well, I think that reflects the, the stakes often, Your Honor. Uh, oftentimes the government does not contest, for instance, a $2,000 uh, EJA award, and because it's the government has to. So, whenever it really makes a difference, 70% of the time the government's position is substantially unjustified? In cases, uh, in the VA context, the number's not quite that large, but is a substantial number of cases at the Court of Appeals. What number would you accept? It was, I believe, in the order of either 50 or maybe slightly more than 50%. Uh, it might be 60. Um, but the number is, is substantial that you get a reversal, and in almost all of those cases, uh, Egypt well, that's really, really startling, isn't it? In litigating with veterans, the government more often than not takes a position that is substantially unjustified? Uh, it is an unfortunate number, Your Honor, and uh, it is — it's accurate. Um, with respect to the question of — in the Social Security context, um, EJA awards — uh, occur not only, um, uh, excuse me, 406B awards under Social Security Administration do not apply in only the 5 percent of the cases that get judgment entered. Uh, 
406B provides that any time a judgment that leads to an award of benefits um, uh, is made, then, then 406B fees are awarded. So even in cases that are remanded to the Social Security Administration, as in this case, um, you can get 406B fees. It's just a question of the timing. You have to do so after a remand determines the amount of the fees. So in all cases in which a claimant ends up recovering uh, back benefits and prevailing and recovering back benefits as a result of a successful court case, that attorney is entitled to payment under 406B pursuant to the fee arrangement with the client. What would that be in this case? What was the the, the amount of the back? That is not in the record, but what, what is in the record, um, actually, no, this is not in the record either, but the, the courts, uh, I can tell you that the district court's opinion at the underlying case uh, pursuant to the government's concession, uh, awarded, uh, determined that two additional months of benefits would be paid. Thank That's you, it. counsel. The case is submitted.